have what we call the Eightfold Path, or it can be divided into three, Sila Samadhi Panya, <coughs> and the Eightfold Path is the Fourth Noble Truth. So then reiterating the First Noble Truth is that there is suffering. Second Noble Truth is the uh, letting go of the causes, of, which is desire. And the third is the uh, realization of cessation, or Nibbana. And then the fourth is the path which is cultivated. So each uh, truth says there's three aspects of each truth, and there's twelve insights. You notice the neat packaging of this Theravada. <laughs> four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. Three aspects and twelve insights. Mm-hmm. This is like a computerized religion. <laughs> well then the formula, it's, 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 these uh, three aspects are, and twelve insights, it's a, uh, like the, the Four Noble Truths are the reflective teachings, therefore investigation, these were like investigation, looking into insight, examination, are very common words in the in the Buddhism. In the Pali language, you got, you know, encouraged to investigate, examine, look into, contemplate, reflect upon, see what the result is. So that the the pattern, of course, is like the three aspects of the first noble truth is there's a statement such as there is suffering. It's a it's a, a statement in which it points to that there is suffering. The second aspect is suffering should be understood. And the third is suffering has been understood. So notice the pattern is a statement. It gives you the what to do about it. And then the result of having done it, then the result of, the, of what you have done. So you have this the premise, or what they call the Bariati formula, which is just the statement. So the insight says there is suffering. Did anyone disagree with that? Anyone not suffered yet? <laughs> <laughs> so they've had you had that insight. <laughs> Suffering should be understood. How many of you have had that insight? <laughs> you, know, you think it shouldn't be understood, we should. <laughs> and then, then you go to the suffering, isn't it? And you should be understood, so you go to understand as you go to it, examine, look at it, test it out, feel it, contemplate it, and then, then it's said the suffering has been understood. So the first is, is an intellectual uh, kind of 
statement, pointing to it, to the to the to the problem, then the formula should be under understanding. In this position of a human being, we can understand things. Understand, as I've been saying, you go to it. You to understand something, you have to examine it. You have to acknowledge it. You have to feel it. You have to taste it. To know what honey tastes like, you have to go and taste it. So then you know what it tastes like. You can say it's sweet and delicious, but you still don't know what it tastes like because you taste it. Suffering uh, is can only be understood through. Uh, so it should be understood, and then you're, you're looking at suffering in, the, in a different way than, say, just uh, complaining about suffering. Then the second noble truth, there is the cause of suffering, which is attachment to desire. Attachment <coughs> to desire. So there's three kinds of desires that we attach to. They, they, they use this three uh, sensual desire, desire for ple- pleasure through the senses. Anyone ever had that kind of desire? <laughs> <laughs> then there's uh, bhava dhanha, is, uh, dhanha is a Pali word which means desire. The becoming, desire to become. They're like wanting to become enlightened, wanting to become this, wanting to become that. So that's like ambition or idea, wanting to, always wanting to become something. I've got like the, this, the first thing, I am somebody who is imperfect, I'm not good enough, I want to become somebody who is enlightened. So bhavadana is oftentimes how we approach meditation, it can be through bhavadana. And then, Vipavadanha is desire to get rid of. Want to get rid of the pain, want to get rid of the, the uh, wandering mind, want to get rid of uh, these bad thoughts, want to get rid of these uh, emotions, want to get rid of, uh, of anything I don't like, want to get rid of it. So, notice that Bhavadanha Pavadana, Vipavadana, Kamadana. So these these are the three desires. These the, the attachment to these desires. Now notice, emphasize attachment to desire is the cause of suffering. It's not even desire. It's attachment to desire. So then, what do you do about it? It should be that, that Dana should be let go of. So the, the treatment for, the, for this is to let go of, of desire, should be let go of, and then you practice letting go of desire, and then you have the desire has been let go of. That's the third insight into the second noble truth. I mean, you guys, of course, these are formulas, and they, 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 they make it all sound neat and, and uh, Simple enough, but I mean, these are these are guidelines. They're not. They're meant to just be 
guidelines for, for practice. So notice the, the st- there is a, the cause of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. This cause should be let go of, and then the practice, you practice with that, and you practice letting go. How do you let go of things? How do you let go of desire? So you, you, you first, you find out what desire really is. What does it feel like? What is gamma dhanha? And you can see like, like the, the, the I, know, I just noticed that like things like, you see things or in books or I was looking at a, my sister's house, they had an REI catalog. <laughs> <laughs> And I saw a lot of things that is, I wanted. <laughs> and I could feel this, 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 this sense of wanting these things. You know, I just contemplating the Dunhard like this. You know, you see a picture in a book, in, a, in this catalogue, it's an attractive enough picture. Uh, and, and, and the mind, and you feel this, like, I'd like to have this. I want this, and so you, you. But, but I wasn't just, just, uh, you know, doing this in a, just to, just to kill time. I was, I was really watching the, just how, just this, this works. This seeing something and wanting it, and and, and feeling it, feeling this, so that you're, you're really examining, noticing desire, and attachment to desire. How when you you have this desire, then you, then you become kind of obsessed with it. I want this. I want this. I got to have it. And so attachment, ubadana, which is attachment or clinging to desire. So first of all, really contemplate desire, or say vipavadana. Uh, I had a lot of that, as being a uh, an annihilationist. Uh, death wish type. Vipavadana <laughs> <laughs> is uh, my middle name. So <laughs> 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 Vipavadana is that I want to get rid of things. I don't want to exist, I don't want this, I don't want to get rid of bad thoughts, want to... So I just notice how, how, and this righteousness, it all sounds right too. You should get rid of bad thoughts. You shouldn't have bad thoughts. You shouldn't be greedy. You shouldn't be looking at an REI catalog. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have these, these gross desires. You shouldn't... Uh, you shouldn't feel aversion to anything. You should be full of loving kindness and and uh, mudita, joy for everything. And you should be uh, full of metta and forgive everyone. <laughs> you shouldn't have these uh, petty thoughts or dirty thoughts or 
or greedy thoughts or anything like that. You shouldn't. And that's when you get this feeling of this, this sense of it is, is wanting to get rid of, not having things. So you, you're really contemplating vipavadanha and, and the grasping of that means you become obsessed, isn't it? Like attachment, grasping, you become, you know, kind of taken over by this desire. I've got to get rid of this, get rid of that. Or bhavadanha, I've got to, got to prove myself, isn't it? That's one of the, the big problems of American conditioning. I've got to prove myself, I've got to make this work, I've got to get somewhere, I've got to become something. I'm not good enough the way I am now, something wrong with me, I've got to practice to become this saintly being that's full of metta, full of forgiveness, full of joy, sometime in the future, hopefully, or the next lifetime, something. So this, so the, the three kinds of desire and grasping, you're you're really contemplating it and and knowing. So you're examining, you're investigating. Yeah. They also another word, Yoniso Manasikara, is very like looking right into the original causes of these things, going deep into it. <coughs> Reflecting, contemplating, Manasikara is like that. <clears throat> and then the insight, tanha should be let go of, or desire should be let go of, letting go. So notice attachment, desire, letting go is the insight into the second, or the second aspect of the second noble truth is desire should be let go of. The causes of suffering should be let go of. So then you practice letting go of desire. So how do you do that? <laughs> you practice it, like, you know, playing the piano or whatever. You, you do exercises with it. It isn't just wishing that you didn't have any desires or kind of fooling yourself that you're letting go. It's not, no, it's very simple. Just you know, once you see desire, identify it, feel it, recognize it, and, and, and then the insight, then the, then the instructions let go of it. Even grasp desire, so that you know what grasping is. You know, doing things deliberately, just to examine, to feel it, rather than half-hearted, or this abstract, with abstractions, and then letting go. Then, and then the third insight, third aspect of the second noble truth is desire has been let go of. That doesn't mean forever, that I'm never going to ever grasp another desire again, but it's just, what the desire you happen to have right now that you're holding, you let go of it. And it's like this, having let go of desire is like this. So this is where the, the, um, so you know what you're doing, you know, you're, you're becoming very, uh, you know, using a lot of, you're using this wisdom, investigation, to really know. It's not just a vague idea that you should be letting go of desire and you shouldn't have desires. 
Now, letting go of desire, what does that feel like? When I let go of desire, it's a, it's a relief. Because when I'm holding on to desire, there's always this agitation, you know. I want this, but I've got to do this. There's always this, got to do something, got to get rid of something, got to practice, got to... It can be desire for all kinds of good things. It isn't just, you know, gross, um, bad desires, the selfish, selfish... Uh, and even a grasping high-minded desires uh, can... You know, wanting, uh, not wanting the world to be the way it is. Thinking, you know, you read the news, you know, the slaughters, latest slaughters and atrocities, and and you get really depressed because you don't want the world to be like that. You don't want to feel really down because because you don't. I don't want the world to be like this. So you're grasping this desire to not want it. I mean, not wanting is good enough, I mean, but the grasping and the obsessive dwelling on it creates, you get depressed. This is a modern news usually depressing to read. If you read too many horrible things, it, you feel depressed because you fill your mind with, a, with ugly images, with with uh, things that are very painful or unpleasant or depressing. So you create a depressive, I mean, it's a depressing, if you fill your mind with depressing images, you're going to feel depressed because you're attached to, to that. So you, you let go, which is not suppression, is it? It's not rejection denying, avoiding, but, but letting go. So that you, you, you practice letting go and then then you have inside desire, this desire has been let go of. Then the third noble truth, there is this, the end of suffering, the niroda, cessation, so then you're noticing like, like uh, the, the absence of something, when something ceases, there's not, it's no, not no longer there. So you realize the absence of grasping. That's why like with the sound of silence or contemplation on emptiness and, and that you're, you're realizing the, the absence of gamadanha, grasping of gamadanha, bhavadanha, vipavadanha. It's a realization. So the, there is a, the end of suffering, the cessation. Cessation should be realized. So then with this word realization. So niroda. Nibbana, these are synonymous. So, Nibbana implies realization of non-grasping. You say the Buddha attained Nibbana, he realized non-grasping of desire. <coughs> then, uh, then, then through that, you should uh, realize cessation, and, and cessation has been realized. 
And notice that the pattern applies there also. So realization is, is just uh, being with the reality of this state, this, the conditions of arising, ceasing, and the, and the relationship to the unconditioned, where you're, you're emphasizing a cessation of conditions so that you're, you know, you're realizing that the, the, the pattern and the, and the absence, when something ceases, it's not there anymore, and you're aware of it. You're realizing the absence of grasping, or the absence of, of desire, the absence of self, or the absence of, of uh, suffering, the absence of greed, hatred, delusion. The emptiness. Emptiness is an absence of things. <coughs> you're noticing. You're, you're realizing that. And then the, the fourth noble truth, there is the path, the Eightfold Path, which is right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right uh, effort, right mindfulness, and right wisdom. Or they you know, sometimes translate, instead of right, they use perfect. It doesn't matter so much as what, what, uh, what you find helpful. The point is that it's, you know, this is, this is the perfect or the right thing. Neither limitation of word, language, but, so, the first two, the, through the, through the, say the first, second, third noble truths, you have the, the, you have the right understanding. So there is this samaditi, it's called right understanding, perfect understanding, which is the, uh, uh, you know, there is the way of non-suffering, there is this path of non-suffering. Because you actually realized it, there is. There is non-suffering. There is a way, in your, because you realize the cessation of conditions rather than, than just uh, being caught into the movement of the conditions themselves. You realize there's a cessation, the, uh, the absence of grasping is like this. So there is a way, not, one, one doesn't have to grasp everything. One isn't just a helpless victim of fate caught in a realm where we just blindly grasping at everything and have no way to, to uh, get beyond it. So then there, this path should be cultivated or developed. Pawana, they use the word pawana, cultivate or develop. And then this path has been developed. Those are the three aspects, twelve insights. So notice the first is uh, understanding, suffering, second is letting go, third is realization, fourth is development or cultivation of this path. So this right understanding, right intention. One, they say, Samma Titi Samma Sangapo. Sangha Sangapo is translated sometimes thinking, right thought, or right intention, but what it means is 
is once there's, there's this samaditi, a right understanding, then then your inclination, your intention is right. You know, you just uh, the path. You're you're like you're you're on this path. It's like you you're, you're moving on this path, and then that that affects action and speech, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So that you're you're developing the sila or the uh, morality. It's like taking responsibility for what you do, how you live. So your your uh, right speech is is uh, we we practice, we develop, we learn how to speak in the right way. We can all speak, but we a lot of speech is just you know social chit chat or. You know, and I can see, you know, I've had to learn how to, to not, to be more accurate and use, try to speak in a more careful way to try to, to try to communicate the right things rather than just the slangy, easygoing speech or the habitual speech or just the, the old habits of saying things in, in, the, in, the, or in the reactive way. I found that quite difficult. Because it's easy to get caught into gossip or old habits of speech, and complaining, blaming, all that kind of thing. Or just uh, not using speech very skillfully. Not to, not using it so that you can you you you're causing people to misunderstand you all the time because of your maybe lazy speech habits whatever so one thing not lie not we, we don't exaggerate we uh, we don't uh, you know white lies or or uh, insults or innuendo or or ways of cursing or putting down somebody. We're not supposed to say things like racist things or things that hurt people's feelings or diminish or humiliate or or uh, put down somebody. Uh, make we're not to make fun of other people or groups or classes or races or anything like that. Then uh, right action, right livelihood. So this is a physical side, isn't it? To, to refrain from doing things with your body that that uh, cause harm to your own body, to, or to or to other people, or to the society, such as respect for life, respect for property. Uh, sexual activities, not to misuse and, uh, and use other people just for for selfish gratification, not to uh, uh, use sexuality irresponsibly, uh, I mean taking resp responsibility for our sexual nature so, so that we're 
we're not using it as a as a just a heedless act or a or just something that exploits somebody else or an abusing one's own body through sexual activities and then they uh, regards to uh, not taking uh, drugs that that harm the the body like that change your that influence and distort conscious experience like dr- uh, alcoholic drinks or or addictive drugs so that is to to refrain from doing uh, d- doing those things too with the body and with the speech and then right livelihood is uh, how how do we make our living you know so that we're we're making our living not in, in through promoting ways that are harmful to ourselves and others or to the planet now there's a lot of awareness around as we pollute the the atmosphere we become more aware that right livelihood is the condition sine qua non and if we're going to survive any any longer we've got to we can't just make our living any old way and like we used to think we could you know wasn't very long ago you know, I can do anything you know the planet is just here for for me to do what I want with it that's how I was raised God created this planet so we can use it the animals are there for us to eat the fish were there for us to eat uh, the birds are there for us to eat <laughs> the vegetables there for us to eat and the insects are there for us to kill and we've got to get rid of the insects and eat the animals and um, and we can it's here for us to, to just enjoy do what we want with it that's a pretty horrible way to think isn't it is that I don't think is that an uncommon interpretation <laughs> <laughs> then uh, though in in right livelihood we we, we want to take responsibility for how we make our living, how we, how we use our lives, say, in the society. We've got to respect the society we're in. Here in America, we need to try to, to live in a way that we're not harming, causing the society unnecessary problems. Yes, problems enough without us adding to them. And uh, how to support the good things of the society and how to encourage the good and not to uh, you know develop like bad speech around the, the you know blaming and, and cursing or or uh, despising the society because of its faults or its its bad side not to to exaggerate what's wrong with it because the society needs you know a kind of mature citizens that 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 are taking responsibility to live in a society to help it. It needs all you know, a democratic society needs our help. 
sometimes we, we think we don't have any responsibility to this society. We just, it's just here for me. And it's in the military, this is, this is how we ended up the four years in the Navy. Was, uh, you came out thinking, what can I, how can I rip off the, the, the Navy? What can, you know, the whole thing was just, what can I get? You know, this government owes me this, I want to get that. And the, and the idea in the Navy, in the military was, get what you can uh, by hook or by crook, don't get caught. Stupid ones get caught. You rip off, steal, anything, but, but don't get caught. And the government owes me all this. And so you, you don't have this, this me, me, selfish attitude of get what you can, you know. Get all you can out of the system. See, and the, they do it in America, there's all this suing obsession, isn't it? Get what you can. Get as much money as you can. You stub your toe in somebody's kitchen. See, how much can you sue them? <laughs> Destroy their life, doesn't matter. As long as you get the money, really. You know, it's not, it's not right livelihood. Then, uh, then the uh, so, so right livelihood is what? What is it? You know, that's what, you have to decide these things. I mean, you you know, not to go have Ajahn Sumedho says kind of thing, but like, figure it out. <laughs> what is right livelihood? What do you feel right about when, when you're making your living? Then, uh, then the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is, this is uh, the samadhi. Effort, samavayamo, well, effort. Is, we have to put, there's effort and there's concentration, samadhi. These two balance each other out with, with sati or mindfulness. The, so that there's this, if you notice the, the relationship is always the three effort, mindfulness, concentration. It's like mindfulness is the kind of middle point. Effort, concentration is more like the, the, the active and passive. Concentration is more like passive, effort is, is active. So to put that, that effort into one's life, to pay attention, to to concentrate the mind, to be with with what's happening. To the concentration, samadhi is like like really opening the mind and sustaining that openness, this awareness, this mindfulness. So that's also it leads to this equanimity or this emotional balance, where before, say, when we're just caught in the movement of the conditions of our mind, we're going up and down with the emotions. We're elated, depressed, elated, depressed. And that's what, you know, like you notice with, with people that take uh, addictive drugs, they get, they get very high and then they go right, right down into hell. The higher you go, the lower you fall. 
I mean, there's this crack of some of these things that, that you read about, you know, that so, it gives you such a high, that it just, they say people that take crack get addicted almost immediately. So it must be really fantastic. <laughs> but then, then it doesn't last very long, and then you go down into hell, and you have to get more. Uh, because this ordinary life, you can't cope anymore with, I mean, like a meditation retreat, it would drive you crazy, wouldn't it? <laughs> Imagine you know, a crack addict on this retreat. <laughs> We'd have to tie you down. <laughs> You know, up real high, and then and just ordinary life is 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 unbearable. And you, so you just so you, so then you just you suffer incredible depression, and you have it drives you to have to get another hit of this stuff, and so you become addicted. So that is just you you're creating yourself into a, a, a kind of into a demon or a, just a preta. A preta is a, like a hungry ghost. And one of the, in the cosmology, the symbol of this preta is this, this, this kind of hideous the creature that uh, has, it has this little mouth about the size of an eye of a needle, a small eye of a needle, <laughs> tiny little mouth. And then it's got this long, skinny neck going down to this enormous stomach the size of Mount Everest. <laughs> and so this poor creature is always hungry. <laughs> hungry ghost. It only fits so much into that tiny little mouth. And it's got to feed this enormous belly the size of Mount Everest. Imagine what that would be like to get the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down this scrawny little neck you know, into this enormous tummy. So there's always this kind of, the creature is always wretched. That's like a, you know, and everything, and, and then whatever you get kind of burns going down this long skinny neck. I mean, drug addicts or people obsessed with with this, with with uh, low kind of obsessions, or, or like pretas, preta mentality, because it's like that. You just you can't ever fill yourself up. You never, you can never, you know, feel full. You're always wanting more. So that is uh, a. An exa a symbol of this, of just extremities, of going up and down with this, wanting to get up high and then falling down to, to a hell realm. So then the human realm, say the sila, right action, right speech, right livelihood. I mean, notice this, is, this creates a kind of, this, we, we create a self-respect as a human being. We respect ourselves when we, when we take responsibility for our lives. At least I do, and I, I couldn't respect myself when I was just following my desires. I got to hate myself, and I just couldn't. I couldn't 
I didn't respect myself at all. When that time in Berkeley before I went in the Peace Corps, looking out the window and of my kitchen at a dog out in the garden and thinking, I'm worse than that dog. That dog is better than I am. I hated myself so much. Because I wasn't living in a way I respected and I was just, you know, just becoming a, a weak and kind of sleazy person. But it didn't want to be like that. It was, it, it was uh, horrible. So, so then the taking on responsibility then allows you to. You, you feel good about yourself. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Then, and then that, that affects, let's say, the, the, the emotional nature. So you have this right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, then effort and concentration, they become synchronized with mindfulness. So say the, the feeling, emotional side is integrated with the instinctual and the intellectual. So you say that instinctual would be like the, that's the, the taking responsibility for action and speech. Because we've got these, these uh, sexual bodies and, the, and instincts for self-preservation. We've got, you know, we've got a, a strong instinctual nature for procreation, self-preservation. Uh, these things are a part of our human uh, physical experience. So, I mean, to, to kill something is, is, uh, is, is instinctual, or just uh, procreation is instinctual. But if we just follow instinct without any, any references or any control, and we, we you know, we just uh, like like an animal. Worse because we can we can we can become predators or demons. Animals have mating seasons. We can we can mate any season. <laughs> then the samadhi is the is the emotion the balanced emotions, and then the intellect is the panya or the wisdom, and the that and then the perfect understanding and intention. So notice that sila, samadhi, panya. There three: the the foundation of sila, samadhi, which is meditation, as you're learning you're beginning to recognize how to balance, how to find that stillness, how to, to not be just caught in the habits and movements of, emotion, of the emotional habits. And then panya, wisdom. With the Precepts. Notice that. Uh, reiterate again. The, this precept is, isn't a commandment, and and I think one reason why in Western world we we kind of resist 
morality or see it as a kind of imposition or a suffocating command because it tends to come from you know you you have to do this it's from god telling you isn't it so so that's how we we tend to feel it this that morality is like something imposed on you or victorian morality where you're you're ostracized you're rejected you're you're punished uh, or because of this this kind of puritanical imposition placed on you but notice in the, the in the the buddhist attitude is much more on the level of it's precept it's not commandment so this is you ask for the precepts i don't command you the precepts Actually, you know, I'm not supposed to give the precepts unless you ask me. You know, according to the Vinaya, I'm not supposed to go around and say, you've got to take the precepts. You're supposed to ask me, can Ajahn Samedo, can we take the precepts? And I can do that. I mean, notice the relationship is based on you're taking responsibility, not me or the priest or the whoever, you know, kind of pushing you around, telling you what you should be doing. So notice that, that, this, uh, that this, this is encouraging this responsibility and, uh, and self-respect because you're, you're, you're being empowered in that way, you're being encouraged. Right? And that's why with Buddhism you don't have, uh, you don't get puritanical. And uh, where in, say, especially in, in Christianity or, or Islam, is really, I mean, it's so easy to get self-righteous and puritanical because it tends to be commandments from above and, and you better obey or you're going to be punished. And where, where they, in the, the Buddhist approach, it comes from encouraging you to take the responsibility, put forth the effort, ask for the precepts, and, and develop your life in that way, uh, so that the, you're you're actually you know a allowing yourself not to be put in a position of a kind of perpetual helpless uh, teenage uh, being that that always needs a father to kind of punish you when you're naughty and, and make their disciples very frightened. Uh, it, uh, this, the disciples or the students don't don't develop very well. They're always kind of cowering and and uh, thinking, you know, I'm not good enough. That my teacher says I've got an ego problem. Or my teacher tells me <laughs> that. No, they, they, I've seen this in the Buddhist world. They say my teacher says that I'm too greedy. My teacher says I've got to get rid of my ego and all that kind of thing. So, but uh, that's not, let's say, that, that's oftentimes because it, if you put yourself in that position of being uh, the authority, then that always makes you look like you're you know, you you have to depend on my wisdom. 
So what, you know, in, teach, in teaching, then it's, uh, it's, it's encouraging toward the good rather than, than intimidating you and, uh, and kind of feeding you a lot of ideas about your problems. Uh, and, but this way isn't ignoring your problems, but, but encouraging you to awaken and notice your own, uh, you know, problems, acknowledging them, and be able to develop skillful means to to uh, overcome them or to you're taking the responsibility to and to to willingness to learn and experiment in order to understand. When I was, you know, I remember years ago with Ajahn Chah, and, you know, you, in some ways you want to lean on a teacher. Some part of me years ago wanted to lean still. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be uh, an adult person. I wanted, to, I liked kind of riding in the wake of a great teacher. Oh, those were happy years when, when I just kind of follow along, tag along behind Ajahn Chah. <laughs> He had to do all the work, and I just sit there and... <laughs> and so this was, uh, I quite enjoyed it, and because and, uh, I, I really enjoyed him, and being around him, and, and, and I quite liked having this kind of loving Ajahn Shah, and he's my teacher kind of feeling, and uh, this kind of romance. But then, uh, uh, it, you know, it, uh, I would try to, you know, I, I, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't all that, con it wasn't consciously done, but it was, you know, I wasn't kind of all that conscious of that I was doing this, but I, I mean, I felt sometimes I resisted having to kind of step out of that uh, relationship into another thing. And, and then, uh, there's also a kind of demand, wanting Ajahn Chah to say, what should I, how should I practice, or do you think I've attained a Sotapanna or something? He said, would you consider me a stream enterer? <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd say, he says, how do you expect me to know? <laughs> They throw you back, you know, you have to look at yourself, you know, what, why do I want, you know, I want Ajahn Chah to tell me? Uh, that'd be nice, I, I mean, I would have liked that at one point, because that's like, you know, Ajahn Chah tells me I'm a stream enterer, and it gives you, you know, you, you're not just not you, you know, you, you've got, you know, this, this, uh, this famous teacher said. <laughs> Would you write that out? In <laughs> so then I began to get the idea that in no way was, was he going to, to, you know, that this was something I had to take responsibility for and find out myself 
rather than than just the you know kind of hope that that the authorities will come forth and kind of say you've made it and well and there, there's a kind of fear in that I found a thing of fear and resistance because there's something kind of frightening about I mean it's at that time there was still a wanting to lean and somehow have the authorities support me and having to to step out and to be responsible and find out myself with there's a kind of fear anxiety about do I dare what's going to happen to me you know that that kind of thing you're stepping out into unknown territory because you, I, I dread the idea of overestimating so one tended to underestimate just assume the worst was the true version of what you are the kind of false humility or a, a habit of, of playing it safe by underestimating yourself all the time so no one would accuse you of having a being inflated or anything so but fortunately in the in the monastic discipline you're not you know you're forbidden to go around announcing your attainments So that, because Ajahn Chah never would say he was attained in any way. I remember asking him about Ajahn Man, his teacher. Said, Is it true Ajahn Man was an Arahant? Ajahn Chah said, he, he was a very good monk. <laughs> Does that mean he wasn't an Arahant? Or maybe that's not the right question. Maybe that's not how it works. Because everybody in Thailand assumes Ajahn Man is an Arahant. It's easier when they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> then you can, what, this apotheosis takes place. Ajahn Chah now is, is in the gallery of the greats. He's up in the stars, you know, because he's dead. When you're still alive, then it's hard to... You can still see things that are human. <laughs> <laughs> Just breathing in that. <laughs> that uh, so this is why, like this morning, when I was talking about the the four the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, and this the, the, seeing how we use the the teaching, like the precepts, are references, are guidelines. They're not absolutes. So, so it's like, like you, because you have to weigh a situation and you have to know yourself. So, so say, la, uh, when my mother was still alive, I remember, this was maybe 10 years ago, I went, my sister, uh, my, my mother was very sick and my sister phoned, I was in the middle of giving a retreat at Amarabhati and, uh, my sister said, I think mother's dying, so I, I kind of had Ajahn Amra take on the rest of the retreat, and I took the first airplane out of, of Britain, flew to San Diego, and my mother was, all right, was getting better, but my sister was totally burned out and in a terrible state. My father was 
was paralyzed and couldn't do anything. My mother, during that time, came back from the hospital, came home from the hospital, and my sister was, was, was she was, uh, you know, really down, and, and she said, I suppose I have to prepare your food too. <laughs> because before I was a strict monk, and, you know, I wouldn't prepare food so that they, they that, you know, they had to prepare and offer the food to me. So my sister thought, here's, you know, I have to cook for him now. I have to cook for him. <laughs> so, so she, uh, you know, now if you're keeping the rules strictly, then that's, that's you know, I could go out on an alms round. But <laughs> 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 taking in, but weighing the situation was the, Realizing that, that at this time maybe I needed to pitch in and help my sister. My father was invalided. My mother was was you know just you know very weak and couldn't do anything. My sister was burnt out. So I started cooking food and uh, helping my mother and doing things that, that according to the the discipline are forbidden. But it's not, it's not like a forbidden in the sense of, of commandment, but seeing it as guidelines, you take into, the situa- take into account the situation you're in. And then I realize that if I'm here and I'm going to help my family, then I've got to, I've got to do this. So it wasn't doing it out of a weakness of character, you know, that I was so greedy for food, I was going to cook it. And <laughs> it, was, it was assessing a situation that that suddenly this being a strict monk was, was not a, a kind or reasonable thing to be at that time. Uh, so that out of, then I, then I, I would do this. So I mean that's, but the, the rules were still there, but it, one, one could adapt or meet a situation or an urgent need with wisdom rather than than just hanging on in a in a rigid way and uh, making everyone uh, making everything more difficult so that they think these Buddhist monks are a pain in the neck. You got <laughs> they're incredibly difficult to take care of. <laughs> because the idea of the Buddhist of the bhikkhu is someone easy to take care of. But some people are absolutely frightened that they're going to do something wrong. Ajahn Sumedho is going to be offended or Ajahn Sumedho is going to be upset because we didn't stab the apple. I mean, this is, but this does reflect how we relate to discipline, rules, and precepts, and commandments. You know, it's contemplating. You know, we're not trying to even criticize commandments, because that's one way of doing something, but, or, or strict holding to rules, or, or, uh, or bending rules, or, or adapting rules, or using precepts, but it's like opening your mind up to 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 trust yourself in 
assessing the situation, knowing your own intention, knowing your character, whether you're just being wishy-washy and weak or indulgent or, or you know, disloyal is, is one thing, or is it, you know, is this something necessary or useful or a benefit? Is it going to, you know, is it, is it kind or is it selfish? And so we, this, these are ways of, of contemplating uh, how to, to say, live our lives taking responsibility for action and speech and for livelihood. Well, I like that. That appeals to me. It appeals to the sense of it. It 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 it, it appeals to so, uh, that kind of maturity in me, where I'm not just being treated like some uh, an idiot that has to to just conform and afraid they'll break a rule or my purity will be stained if I do this or that. I don't. I don't. I don't think like that. I don't like that kind of thinking, where I'm just protecting my purity at all costs, at everyone else's expense. But uh, the, the purity is, isn't from, from just holding on to things, but uh, to, to rules and morality, but to be able to understand and, and respond in skillfully to specific situations, because Life is always presenting us with, with uh, each, you know, life isn't just a, a kind of uh, everything fits into the basic pattern of, you know, everything is like this. We're always having, there's always special conditions influencing a particular thing. And, and oftentimes with rules, lawyers and that, uh, laws, you want to go by the book and you want to fit everyone into to the existing rules and you resent taking in special conditions because you, you want you, people that want to go by the book really resent anything that demands special consideration but tell me what in life isn't special I mean in, in, in one way we're all special in a way we're all unique or or situation, no situation is going to be exactly a, a, a duplicate of a previous one. And so that's why mindfulness wisdom is, 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 is something, is, is necessary other than just obeying rules and trying to do things according to the, to the, to the book. Because then, then you, that's where things don't work anymore, is where you're, you're trying to fit everything into the, a very narrow, rigid uh, view of life. But this also means it's not as clear-cut. You can, you know, if you get these black and white things going, it somehow makes everything, it makes you feel secure because, uh, you know, you know this is good and that's bad. So you you have, it's, it's a very simple, it simplifies, but it also uh, means that you, you become insensitive, because you, so pretty soon you don't know what really goodness is, if it doesn't fit into the description in the book. 
So like, like the, with uh, religious persecution, and other religions persecute other religions because uh, we don't fit into the uh, perceptions of, uh, say, certain, of religious, of a certain religion. So you, uh, so then they think you're, a, you're the devil. One of our monks went on a tudong last year, went to Mount Athos in Greece, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. They wouldn't let him in in his robes. They said he was a, saint, a, a disciple of Satan. He's a good Buddhist monk. <laughs> they see Satan. Where's that coming from? That's not mindfulness, is it? Or why? <laughs> they can't recognize a good Buddhist monk because he's not, doesn't have a long beard and, and he's not an orthodox Christian and he, he's a disciple of the devil. They finally let him in. He had to put on jeans or something. <laughs> Then he said, everywhere, they, they, you know, there's this eerie feeling you know, in the in monasteries in Mount Athos where, where the, you know, they go like they, they don't know what to do. And they, so you, Satan or something. <laughs> so I mean, it, that that is, you know, not it's not, to, you know, you've seen things in such a rigid way that you can't recognize goodness unless it unless you put on the right costume, speak the right language, have the right accent, have the right movement, and then, then oh, that, that's good. But if it's a bit off, then it's satanic. And then, it, and of course, then you can uh, be very harmful, hurtful, and, and destroy goodness, which is evil in itself, isn't it? Like witch burning or something like that. It's just, you're burning witches because they're evil, but the actual burning of witches is evil. <laughs> and so, like, like, mindfulness wisdom is, is guiding us toward this, towards really uh, waking up, observing, knowing what goodness is, rather than defining goodness in, in cultural terms uh, and, and rigid concepts. Because goodness is something you feel, isn't it? It, it? it more is on an intuitive thing. It's not not you can't just list it and say these are this is good and that's bad. But in the when the Dalai Lama gave his seminar in uh, with the John Main Society in London last year, it was you know they this Catholic meditation organization invite the Dalai Lama to give uh, to give commentary on the Gospels at the end of it all these Benedictines we see Jesus Christ in the Dalai Lama <laughs> that's one way of putting it isn't it they they've seen what their their highest one of their their, their most revered their revered teacher and savior in the Dalai Lama which is the, their way of saying that they're recognizing purity and goodness, even though it, Dalai Lama doesn't look Christian. <laughs> doesn't look like a Christian. 
He looks like a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> so I contemplate this. You can chant the chant the sharing of blessings.